Why does every American town have make-out point? You don't have a national health service, but like by law, every town has to have a make-out point. Yeah, because we know what's important. Okay. Um, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> no, we didn't. Uh, and my town didn't really have one because it's so rural you could just go anywhere. So there, uh, I think that's more like in... The world is my make-out point. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. I am Dr. Abby Boucher. Hello, I'm Daniel. Also known as... Dr. Daniel Jenkins Smith, always underselling. Two my friends, yep. <laughs> you don't have any friends. No. This is a literature podcast. We recap great books. Take them down a peg or two. I'm not doing it for anybody yeah. else. I'm doing it to take those books down a peg or two. I like that, yeah. No. Okay, so this is our Halloween special, so it might be a little bit longer than a normal episode. We thought we'd, we'd run with it. Um, I would not expect that to be better. Lower your expectations. It's going to be a grim old slog. That's yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. This is not the campus thing we have ever talked about on this show. And because it's Halloween, we're here in full costume, and Daniel is dressed as the back half of a horse, which is a little Othello episode shout-out. Where did you get all those pearls, then, for this uh, pearly, pearly king or queen costume? It's a gender-neutral pearly king or queen costume. I like that. That's, yeah. Thank Marrying you. the traditional cockney culture with contemporary wokeism. <laughs> Well, see, I have this um, rich friend who tore this uh, pearl necklace off. She threw it in the trash, and I thought, if she doesn't want it, might as well reappropriate it for a charity purpose. Yeah. We have a conflation of a lot of different episodes here. Know, this it's is turning into in-jokery, most foul. Uh, yes, this is completely self-indulgent. Well, we had a good run. So, because we had some letters and write-in suggestions, I'm actually going to move these to the end so we can get to our text. What? No. There are certain sacred laws that underpin this podcast and you cannot i am so throwing this podcast recording off its game i'm sorry you're just trying to get business done we're only on point two <laughs> forgive me keep going should i start again yeah <laughs> okay so we've had some letters and writing suggestions we're going to move them to the end of the what I also saw the Gawain and the Green Knight film that just came out, which was our fourth episode. If you guys haven't listened to that one, I highly recommend it because the source material is the most bonkers book I think we could ever dream of covering that might be our best episode. Don't worry if you don't actually know the text. We recap it for you. Oh. Film, so uh, I'll do a very, very brief reaction to the film at the end of the podcast. I do have a new update that I would like to start introducing, and this is our David Tennant update. So, David, I know you're an avid listener. Uh, you probably want to get started on our new adaptation of The Crucible as quickly as I do, so that was I proposed that as the sort of film adaptation in our last episode. But your people aren't really returning my calls, so I, I'm not sure if you need to fire your PA or like what's going on there, but I'm going to actually meet you outside of the Victoria and Albert Museum in like four hours, and we'll get to work. And if I don't hear from you, I'm just going to assume that you're on your way. So Daniel, in this hour spooky Halloween episode, what is our text today? It's the 1890s. 
telegraph, train, steamboats. They are prizing their way into every corner of the globe, every nook and cranny. Commerce, war, technology, medicine. Europe is eating the whole world up. And it's all centered on London, a city of six million people, six million souls teeming. Globalization, imperialism, it's all in hyperdrive. It has its bad sides. Did you know that? Imperialism has its bad sides. What? Yeah, do you know what those are? I mean, genocide, presumably, no. ecological no, destruction. No, no, no. Okay. Not worry about that. The problem with globalization and imperialism is it is a two-way street. What? They could come here? You better believe it. We're doing Dracula by Bram Stoker. Thank 1897. You. We never put the year in, do we? So it goes without saying, we are going to spoil this novel for you. So if you haven't read it and would like to, stop listening here. There are a lot of trigger warnings here. I'm putting a sort of blanket note. Any vampire or vampire adjacent triggers, it's probably in this book. There's infant mortality, quite presumably violently animal attacks, imprisonment, more corpse atrocities and necrophilia, kinda. That is a running theme in this podcast, accidentally. We have heart attacks, PTSD, mental health and madness, and kind of sexual assault. That's a, that's a little bit of a question mark there. A little bit of background on this. What I find really cool is that Bram Stoker got the idea for this visiting my neck of the woods. He visited, I think it was New York, but he, it, he took this from the uh, New England vampire panics of the, well, all through the 1800s. So he was a London stage manager and in 1892 was touring America with his theater company. And there are actual newspaper clippings in his possession about this, this New England vampire panic because there were a ton of tuberculosis outbreaks and the ruralness of New England in the 1800s meant that you got these little pockets of folkloric practices that kept going surprisingly late especially in Vermont, my home state, they would have a lot of public burnings of hearts and we will explore what the heart connection is. That sounds spooky. Later. Yeah. He's Irish well, as well, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Anglo-Irish, so sort of an elite, but also an outsider. Um, oh, I like that. Yes, yeah, so yeah. he's, he's straddling yeah. a couple of different lines here. He also, I don't want to say plagiarized, but he took maybe a little bit too much inspiration from multiple stories, especially Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, which was written 25 years before. And you guys should all read Carmilla because that is not even a covert lesbian vampire story. Like, if you think the Victorians were uptight, read this book and then get back to me. It's because it's not, you can't even say queer reading because it's just like, that is the plot. It's two girls who are having sex with each other and in love. Like, that's what it is. And one of them might be a vampire. So I, the ambiguity is the vampire rather than the sexuality. Yeah, and even that's, oh, okay. you know, yeah. not... That, that becomes quite Vampire clear. Vampire reading. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that we thought would be kind of fun is Dracula did actually invent some stuff in vampire mythology that we consider now to just be a sort of hallmark of the vampire and it was actually created here in a very modern context. So I'm going to integrate that as we go and we encounter various cliches of the vampire. I'm going to tell you, is this a sort of ancient folkloric thing or did Bram Stoker just make it up and now it's it's become a sort of trademark of the vampire. All right, get that flashlight up under your face. And are you gonna mind if I do horror film noises the whole time? Or like uh, bring a uh, music box. Oh no, I hate a music box. Okay, are you ready, friend? What a spooktacular. Uh, I can't even say that, sorry. <laughs> Thank you.
fans of uh, Pamela, and there are many out there, I assure you. Not me, but... Will recall that there is a thing called an epistolary novel. This is also one of them. What is that? Can you remind us what that is? A book made up of letters and documents. And these are all uh, quite varied, aren't they? There's all newspaper cuttings and things. We start with the diary of Jonathan Harker, who is a newly qualified solicitor en route to the Carpathian Mountains. Where he's visiting a client. Do they not have lawyers in, in the Carpathian? Well, maybe we'll find out why he, he, his client needs okay. an English lawyer. So he's kind of pretty entertained by it all, isn't he? Uh, Transylvania, he describes as one of the wildest and least known portions of the continent, and that thrills him. He likes all that mythology and the ethnic diversity, he likes the exoticism. He's such a nerd, though, he categorizes all the people. Like, he's there doing his little sociology dissertation. Yeah, he's getting all the old calipers out and measuring everyone's heads. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, the Orientalist bit when he goes to Budapest. The impression I had was that we were leaving the West and entering the East. Uh, he goes to an inn when he's kind of near the home of his client, and the people at the inn seem a bit spooked. Yeah, they, when the locals give you a crucifix whenever you mention your client's name, that's not great. And um, also we get some great breakfasts here, don't we? Lots of paprika and aubergine. That all sounded good, I thought. Yeah, eggplant stuffed with force meat. What the hell is force meat? I think it sounds like a terrine or something, I was just thinking. I was just thinking what a great band name that is. <laughs> yes, that's really good, that, yeah. Hello, Milwaukee! We are force meat! Two, three, four! <laughs> oh my god, is that our band? Have we finally found our sound and our band name? Yeah, force meat. Stay tuned for not only our spin-off YouTube series where Daniel eats a lot of interesting breakfasts. I would eat these breakfasts, actually. These sound okay. Sound these sound like good. You would like, yeah. What do you mean that I would like? You would like them, too. That sounds like you would like. Yeah, in addition to our YouTube spin-off series, we will also <laughs> be cutting an album. Straight up gangster rap. I would... <laughs> no, it's a prog band. We're, we're gonna... Straight up gangster prog. <laughs> it's a fusion genre. <laughs> so eventually, after lots of traveling, Harker gets picked up and heads to Castle Dracula, and he's picked up in a special carriage uh, by Count, sent by Count Dracula to take him up the mountain to the isolated castle. And every item in the Gothic playbook is here, so we have a midnight carriage ride, we have wolves howling in the distance, just the works. And Jonathan Harker is completely bricking it, as you would. And of the castle, he says, its broken battlements showed a jagged line against the moonlit sky. So we are in it. There is no fucking preamble. And you know why? Because Dracula don't need an opener, friend. We are just full gothic immediately. And I cherish this. You're probably wishing we were back doing a little ethnographic survey of all the trends. How, how much different ethnic groups look like cowboys. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I would like that. <laughs> yeah, Daniel's like, we haven't had a recipe in three and a half pages. I was like that when I first read this. <laughs> they make it to the castle, and Harker meets Count Dracula, a, quote, tall old man, clean-shaven save for a long white mustache, and clad in black from head to foot. Dracula is also, it should be pointed out, not hot. So we get a lot of sexy vampires nowadays. Not our friend Drac here. He is very pale, coarse, and he has huge nostrils. He's balding, but with lots of hair everywhere else. So he has this enormous unibrow. He has this big mustache. Hairy palms. And Harker even notices that there are hairs on the palms of Dracula's hands. Some people like that. Daniel, what is the stereotype, which I don't know the origin of, but I imagine it came from a Victorian discourse, what is the stereotype about hairy palms? No, it's not, do you not have this here? No. Uh, 
that's go uh, on. What is it? Uh, the uh, maybe this is an American thing. I don't know, but the the old wives' tale is that if you, as a boy, masturbated, you would get hairy palms. So I read this. And went, you know, there aren't too many podcasts where you hear the phrase Count Dracula chronic masturbator, but here we are. Wow. No, I, blindness is the... Uh, that's the other yeah. one, but that is really interesting. Okay. Having hairy palms is far less of an issue than being blind, I think. Yes, but that was a... This is more like so you know. Yeah, it's like a... Spot on. Exactly. Yeah. I was just thinking, you know, poor Count Dracula, he doesn't get many visitors, it's just him and the wolves. What else is he going to do? the steak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Dracula serves up this big feast for Harker, but he doesn't eat himself. He just sort of stands back and watches Harker eat, which is my least favorite thing in the world. So the next day, Harker is impressed by the grandeur of the place. He goes on a bit of an explore. The castle is crumbling, but there's also sheer opulence to the point that Dracula just kind of has piles of gold coins in random places. And I just think this is the best episode of MTV Cribs I have ever seen. Do you think he has a bowling alley? No. But Dracula says that his castle is basically dead and he's always been a bit of an Anglophile and has always wanted to travel to England to see the quote, rush of humanity. Harker sort of settles into life at Castle Dracula. His host is away during the day and in the evenings he and Dracula have nice little kind of tete-a-tetes, primarily about like ethnic purity and stuff, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> in the 1890s? I, I remember that. Yeah, they also talk business. Dracula is buying Carfax Manor, a house in Essex. Then things start to get a bit weirder. Dracula keeps popping up in funny places, including behind Harker while he's having a shave. Harker didn't even uh, see Dracula behind him in the mirror. That's funny. We're going to add in a little ding here for... We have Vampire a... trope. Yeah, mythology alert. So the idea of vampires having no reflection, is this an ancient thing or is this a modern thing? It's a great idea, but I feel like it has too much of being an idea, so I feel like Bram Stoker came up with it. You are very close. So this is a totally modern invention. This is not a sort of ancient thing, as, as best as I can tell. I'm happy to be corrected on this. Most people do actually think Bram Stoker invented this. However, I have traced this back to Alexander Dumas' short story, The Vampire of the Carpathian Mountains, that he wrote in 1848. And the reason why people think Stoker sort of made this up here is because the Dumas story has not really been translated out of French, and the few translations that exist are apparently very, very bad. Yeah, that's interesting. Yes. So Dracula, yeah, he wasn't even behind Harker in the mirror while he was having a shave. He spooks Harker a bit, who cuts his chin, and Dracula reacts... Well, he overreacts, let's put it that way. <laughs> With a sort of demonic fury, he grabs Harker's throat and then recoils at the sight of Harker's cross. And then he kind of steps back a bit and throws Harker's mirror out the window. I do that whenever a guest comes over. Just I, As my tithe, I take one of their possessions to yeah. give it to the window god. It, this is another sort of mythology alert here. Vampires reacting to crosses, garlic, holy water, all those sort of things. Is this is this ancient or did Bram Stoker make this up? That seems more reasonably like an older one. Yeah, so this is a really ancient belief. It's actually something called apotropaic magic. And this is when certain items or behaviors are, we think they're imbued with like a semi-magical property. So if you think about things like signs to ward off the evil eye or crossing yourself or lucky charms or whatever. But what I think is really cool is that there are a ton of these about vampires, but they all have these regional variations. So there are some areas that think things like hawthorn, roses, or even mustard protect you against vampires. Harker is spooked by the whole shaving episode and starts to realize that the castle is a veritable prison. 
and that he is a prisoner. Yeah, he's like, all this lavish attention is great, but it's a little obsessive. All this slavish attention. <laughs> but he's like, are you, are you trying to wine and dine me, or is this like a hostage situation? And Dracula goes, yes. <laughs> and he also tells Harker to inform his boss that he will be staying at the castle for another month. Mm. <laughs> Can you imagine when Harker gets back to England, his conversation with HR, just after this, like, Linda, I gotta talk to my union rep. Finally. Oh, I love this bit, sorry. Harker's just looking out the window, you know, like we all do, just kind of staring into the abyss. And then he notices the Count looking out from the other, another window. And he's quite amused by that, isn't he, at first? He's like, oh, that's funny, look, we're both looking out of windows. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a quote. But my very feelings changed to repulsion and terror when I saw the whole man slowly emerge from the window and begin to crawl down the castle wall over the dreadful abyss, face down with his cloak spreading out around him like great wings. He scampers like a goddamn lizard. He says that later on. He calls it lizard yes. fashion. Oh, I don't, I don't like this. No, 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 no. I would fling myself out that window and death roll down this mountain. I like also in this bit, he says, I began to fear as I wrote in this book that I was getting too diffuse, but now I am glad that I went into detail from the first. For there is something strange about this place. They always have to explain, like, why am I writing my journal like a novel? It's the same in Pamela, isn't it? Yep. Why am I writing and not escaping? I'm in incredible danger, but I thought I'd finish this letter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Harker starts to slowly piece together the fact that he's in a vampire story, thinking his thoughts in poorly rendered cartoon. But I suppose if the vampire myth isn't actually that big a thing in the Victorian era, which it kind of wasn't, like ghost stories were way, way bigger. So Harker starts to realize that he can't, he knows he can't fight the Count. He can only outsmart him. This is reminding me a little bit of Pamela as well. If you're alone and terrified and kept prisoner. Marry the guy. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, 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 actually. No, but that you can't physically fight back. So you have to just pretend like all is well. Harker knows this. He's like, I can't let him know. I'll just put on a cheerful face and figure out a way to escape. Vlad, your palms will be hairy no longer. <laughs> I'm yours! <laughs> so then, are you ready for maybe the greatest scene in any Victorian novel? The next night, Harker falls asleep reading by the fire in one of the common areas where Count Dracula has told him not to fall asleep. He says, you're safer in your room. And Harker's are like, whoa, 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 and he does anyway. And he gets woken up by three attractive women. And not just attractive, Bram Stoker goes out of his way to explain how nasty hot they are, and it turns out the Count's got himself some fine biddies. He has three wives, apparently. Which, okay, first of all, later in the story, we are going to be introduced to two really great, handsome dudes who cannot get dates to save their lives, and yet this old creep has three ladies in some sort of polycule situation. Ludicrous. So here we have our first queer reading. There's more than one polycule in this book, and I like it. I am here for it. Okay, so Harker wakes up. These women seem sort of cruel and vicious, but they're, you know, really booby. So. He has mixed feelings, to say the least. He, yeah, he's, he's really uneasy, but also instantly aroused. And that is not me sort of putting my own stamp on it. It is made very, very explicit. He goes on and on about how much he wants to be kissed by their luscious lips. And I'm like, damn, son, we've got some 
Save me from myself after dark. The women start to lean into him. They, they start to um, surround him, going for his neck. And Harker thinks he's about to get a hickey, which is going to trigger this 4G situation. I mean, like, you and I know, the reader knows it's not a hickey. But Harker is in, quote, languorous ecstasy about it as they approach his neck. When Daniel sent me over his notes, he wrote that Harker was, quote, entertained and terrified by this. Entertained, Daniel? I said suitably entertained. This is such a slutty book. Can you please lean into it just a little bit more? <laughs> suitably entertained was? You know the modern slang thought, T-H-O-T, that hoe over there? No. All I kept thinking while reading this was the phrase, it's not the thought that counts, it's the count that thoughts. And I don't know what it means, but it feels powerful. And I feel like we should yep. start using it. Okay. Harker's in a room with a bunch of sexual murderers who are cornering him like a pack of velociraptors. And in comes Count Cockblock, who is furious. And he just starts flinging women around the room, screaming, how dare you touch my new boyfriend? Cause there's kind of a, there's a little undercurrent. There's a little something something I think there. And the women look at him and they're like, um, our boyfriend. And the Count forbids him to touch Harker. And then to placate his wives, he reaches under his cape and produces a literal, actual human baby. And then he throws at them and the women are real satisfied with this. And they go off with the baby, presumably to eat it. And then Harker is left there with the most confused and scared erection in the world. And then he faints. The next day, Dracula asks Harker to write some more letters. In these, he has to falsely imply that he's on his way home. So Harker knows that he's in trouble now. The Dr Dracula's trying to create the sense that Harker went missing en route or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, the letters are like, I'm in the castle and I'm fine, just dandy. Oh, I'm on my way home. I just got on the bus. Oh, I'm home. Where are you? <laughs> the Count steals all of Harker's pens and papers so he can't get a real message back home. And I was like, this guy, he's read he, Pamela. He knows what to do. So in the middle of Harker's gothic despair, he gets interrupted. This this scene is so scary. It's, it's genuinely scary. When he hears a woman sobbing at the castle's gates, screaming, monster, give me my child. So this is presumably the mother of the baby. <sighs> it's all fun and games till somebody gets et. So Harker hears the Count start to speak from the tower down to the woman. Get out of here. No, he does whatever the wolf equivalent of parcel tongue is because this asshole controls wolves. And the wolves pour into the courtyard like Gandalf cowboying in at the end of the Battle of Helm's Deep. And they swarm around her. And when the wolves depart, there is nothing of her left. And this might be the most effectively scary passage of any pre-20th century novel I've read. The first time I read this book, I was in high school and um, my mom had to come into the room and yell at me because she heard me say, what the living fuck. Harker saw the whole thing, didn't he? He wasn't impressed, to say the least. <laughs> I think he was suitably impressed. It made an impression. All right. In that case, he was impressed. He was not- To say the least. He, he wasn't entertained, to say the least. In none of the senses that that would. You don't know. Then he overhears Dracula speaking, presumably, to those three women. You know, the ones that he uh, had the rendezvous with. And he says, he's leaving, and he's leaving them, Harker, to have their way with. Hmm, you nasty. Harker's upset, understandably. So, breaks into the Count's room and finds him lying motionless in a box and realises what's been going on this whole time, that he is a vampire. You know what I would do if I were Harker? And I found this sort of guy in a complete coma-like state. Go on. Weekend at Bernie's. 
And then Dracula's carted off in his special box. Meanwhile, Harker is like, well, you know. I'm going to get out of this castle. I love you and leave here, he says to the diary, doesn't he? And then he's like, I'm going to jump down the walls or something like that. Ta-ta. We then cut to a series of letters. So we, we leave Harker. We never see what happens to him in that castle. It's like a mini novella, isn't it? That's yeah. Cool. That's over. It's yeah. perfect. It's this perfect it's little, like, if, if that yeah. were a short story on its own, that would be brilliant on its own. But thankfully, we have more. So we then cut to a series of letters between Harker's main squeeze, Mina, and her best friend, Lucy Westernra. And Mina is part of the new woman set. Do you, want, do you want to explain what the new woman is very briefly? Picture the scene. Trousers or bloomers. Bicycles. Typewriters. Women using all of the above. What? I know. But think of the uterus. Exactly, yeah, I know. What? Yeah, it's very dangerous. Earning money even, some of the women are. Daniel, you're being disgusting. Yeah, I know, it's clearly ridiculous. So yeah, that's what was going on in the 1880s and 90s. Yeah, just women entered the workforce more. They got more concerned with learning practical skills and professions and being in reasonable dress that did not constantly catch them on fire or get them swept up into, yeah. you know. She also helps Herker with his legal work. She knows how to type and how to take shorthand and just generally how to be a baller who can take care of her own damn self. The dream. Yeah, that's the dream. So she writes to her friend Lucy, who's a lot more of the traditional Victorian lady. She's very delicate and beautiful. And she asks Lucy to give her all the hot goss on Lucy's love life. And it turns out the goss is pretty hot indeed. Because Lucy's got not one, but three marriage proposals all on the same day. Girl, same. And we are introduced now to her suitors. There is Dr. Jack Seward, a man who runs an asylum, but weirdly isn't that much of a creep himself. He's young and handsome and, you know, seems to be a relatively decent doctor. Then we have the best character in the book, Quincy P. Morris, a Texan who woos Lucy. P. Quincy Morris, I think you'll find. Not every American does the... But they wish they did. It's my right as an American to put up any initial word where I'd damn well <laughs> dad zootin' tootin' rootin' won't. Dad? Is that you? <laughs> Quincy P. Morris, a Texan who woos Lucy with stories like Othello and Desdemona, which they reference in this book, and we, we covered the play Othello in our second episode. Miss Lucy, I know I ain't good enough to regulate the fixings of your little shoes, but I guess if you wait till you find a man that is, you would go join them seven young women with the lamps when you quit. Won't you just hitch up alongside of me and let us go down the long road together, driving in the double harness? <laughs> Something like that. It's flawless. Thank this you. is so stupid and so creepy. How would you say no to that? I didn't even understand it. <laughs> <laughs> you know when you like a, a, in a loud place and like a club or something and you just say, yep. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are fixings on little shoes? Like the lacings. Oh, right. Could you not? Maybe something more interesting than that. Could you not context clues your way out of that paper bag? <laughs> Sorry. Wet paper bag. But instead, she turns down this very romantic horse-themed proposal and accepts instead the marriage proposal of a third guy, Arthur Holmwood, who is the heir to a lord. So I guess that does kind of make sense. And the best part of all of this is that these three dudes are all best friends. And Lucy says, and this is actually for the day a little, uh, a little salacious, a little, you know, exciting. Why can't they let a girl marry three men, or as many men as wants her, and save all this trouble? Friend, the solution is simple. Polycule. I hope they all get a really nice apartment together. A south-facing apartment with a bed big enough for four. This is a great queer reading, and I love it. And Seward and Quincy send their congratulations to Arthur, even though they're really disappointed, and it's just so wholesome. And this is like an inversion of the toxic 
polycule that Dracula has with his three wives, which is all like it controlling. Could be very supportive. Well, not from what we've seen. We have no textual evidence for that. We've okay. only seen him flinging women around and throwing infants at them. I wonder what the three of those would be like as friends. Like, the only thing they seem to have in common is Lucy. We shift to Mina's diary. She is visiting Lucy in Whitby. Mina is starting to worry about Jonathan's lack of correspondence. And then we also get Mina's diary entries interspersed with entries from Seward's phonograph diary. Well, after getting rebuffed by Lucy, he's like, I'm going to focus on my, my work including R.M. Renfield, one of his weirder patients. So Renfield's behaviour is getting odder and odder. At first he catches flies. Oh yeah, take me where we're headed, Daniel. This is so gross. Then he catches spiders no. and feeds those. Th he feeds some to the flies and eats the rest. Then he starts catching sparrows raised on a diet of spiders. And then uh, in an interview with uh, Seward, he requests a kitten. Yeah, and Seward, who's actually a good doctor, is like, no, this stops here because then you're just going to feed the sparrows to the kitten and a kitten to a dog mm. and the dog to a giraffe and the giraffe to a shark and I'm, I'm going to put pay to this. Yeah, the hospital right? can't yeah. afford those sorts of resources. Later on, Seward hears that Renfield has puked up some feathers, so we can <laughs> assume that he's been eating the sparrows as well. Back to Mina's diary, she hears that a strange woman, i.e. Lucy, has been seen sleepwalking around Whitby and... I have been to Whitby, Whitby, and it's very cliffy, so Ooh. it's quite dangerous, I think, to... Yeah, Lucy, Lucy's starting to get a bit anxious, a bit disturbed in her sleep. She's, she's not really having a good go of it, and yeah, she has started sleepwalking. Then we get another sort of gothic mini-masterpiece within this gothic masterpiece, right? So another a new, a new set piece. We get a newspaper clipping about an unnaturally horrible storm in the area. And some people see a ship that's caught up in this storm and it drifts dangerously close to the pier. And when the Coast Guard arrives to help the ship, they board and they find a man fastened to the wheel. Like he's tied himself there and he, he's clutching a crucifix. And all the officials are like, what fresh hell is this? Then they look at the ship. This is going to be a bleeding nightmare. I'm writing a report on this. Don't talk like that. I don't know. What's Yorkshire? Bloody report. Shall we fill in our flesh? All the paperwork. Then they uh, they look at the ship's log, and not uh, not to make another a second Lord of the Rings reference in this, but it's a little bit like the Mines of Moria when they find the diary of you know yeah. the drums in the deep. It's it's that level of creepy where you, you can see this sort of disaster unfolding. So the ship set out from Varna, Bulgaria, which is not that far from Transylvania, and it took on a lot of cargo, including some boxes of earth being shipped to England. And I once actually saw a tweet saying that Bram Stoker said, hey, I wrote the 64-page story about a vampire, and his editor is like, well, it's good, but could you add 300 pages of vampire hunters tracking a shipment? And I actually don't think that's fair. I think one of the most sinister parts of this story is the sort of innocuousness of these documents. Mm. It's these sailors having no idea what they're shipping. It's this sort of very innocent-looking thing in their midst. Yeah. On the trip, the sailors start feeling like something's wrong, but the captain just chalks that up to seafaring types being vaguely superstitious, and he's like, you guys are being ridiculous. Then some of the crew start going missing. So they search the whole ship from top to bottom, wondering, is there somebody on the ship? Is there something on the ship making people sick? Like, what, what is happening? And they find nothing. No stowaways, no trace of the missing sailors, just the cargo they're transporting. Then more men disappear. Just a cry into the night, and they are gone. So to say that there is f***ery afoot is the understatement of the year. 
One of the sailors then says, I've seen a tall, pale, thin man walking on deck, and I know this is the guy who was pulling something and, and murdering us. So he apparently went up and stabbed this tall man with a knife, and the man just disappeared. So the sailor knows that the man has got to be in one of those cargo boxes that they're shipping, and they should search through them. And the captain, who by this point I think is the worst captain in the world, if your sailors keep mysteriously disappearing, thinks the sailor has just gone mad and refuses to let him search. The sailor goes down and searches anyway, and then runs screaming on deck and throws himself into the sea. And the captain, who by this point doesn't really have enough men left to crew the ship, says he'll lash himself to the wheel and try to bring the ship into the harbor in England, or he'll go down with it. And that's the last we have from the ship's log. I'm sorry, it's so stupid. I've got to stop doing that. Back to the further adventures of uh, Mina and Lucy on holiday. Mina tries to exhaust Lucy by uh, getting her to walk from Whitby to Robin Hood's Bay and back. And I have done that walk and it is quite tiring. I taken you on a very long walk before and I was I mean I thought it was a medium walk and you were exhausted by it you I believe compared it to the desert trek in the good the bad the ugly yes clearly I'm just incredibly unfit <laughs> less fit than a Victorian woman Victorian lady so Mina thinks that oh that will stop Lucy sleepwalking next night she sees that she is still a wandering up amongst the graves at night Mina goes up to get her and sees a dark being with a white face and red gleaming eyes preying upon Lucy the next day Mina notices that Lucy has two bloody marks on her neck. She kind of chalks it up to oh, I pinned a, wrapping a pin. Yeah. I pinned a cloak around her shoulders and I must have been careless with yeah. the safety pin. And then that night, Lucy keeps trying to get out of her room. Because, I mean, Mina started sleeping in Lucy's room with her and it's a, it's a little baby queer reading that I don't fully buy, but I'll allow it. Okay, that's very good of you. We have a later diary entry that says, No diary for two whole days. I have not had the heart to write. Some sort of shadowy pall seems to be coming over our happiness. No news from Jonathan, and Lucy seems to be growing weaker. <laughs> well, I mean, creepy things start happening around the town as well. So a, there's this sweet old man that Lucy and Mina know who dies horribly. His neck is broken and nobody can like figure out why. So I'm glad Dogs start barking and bristling around town. Both girls become very anxious. And Lucy's mother also confides in Mina that she's had some bad health of her own and her heart is weakening and one bad shock will kill her. So we have loaded Chekhov's heart attack. Yeah, ventricle. Um. <laughs> so in a tonal shift, we cut to some legal letters stating that some boxes of earth have been unloaded from a cargo ship in Whitby and need to be transported down south to a place called Carfax Manor. Mina then reports that Lucy is all of a sudden loads better. And Mina also finally gets news of Jonathan. Something has happened to him, something terrible. She doesn't know what it is. He's taken, been taken seriously ill, but he has somehow made it to a Transylvanian convent where he is being nursed back to health. And Mina decides that since Lucy's doing okay, she's gonna rush over to Transylvania immediately and marry him abroad. We then cut back to Dr. Seward, who notices some other changes in Renfield. He refuses to talk to Dr. Seward anymore because, quote, the master is at hand. Then Renfield escapes, and they try to chase him down to the estate next door, a place called Carfax. What? So they manage to wrestle him into a straitjacket, and he screams, quote, I shall be patient, master. It is coming, coming, coming. And Seward thinks he has picked the wrong week to stop taking his sleeping medication. But I'm like, friend, it is the 1890s and you are in the medical field. Why are you not doing cocaine? Go the other way with it. Yeah, Mina's gone to Eastern Europe to pick up Jonathan, possibly marry the guy. 
and she writes to Lucy to say what's up going on. She says that Jonathan's a wreck of himself and doesn't remember anything that has happened to him for the, for a long time past. At least he wants me to believe so. So I think she's kind of a bit like, what's he been up to in the bordellos of Hungary? Uh, hi, wait, uh, Daniel, excuse me, um, Abby Boucher, Save Me From My Shelf podcast. Uh, how far are you prepared to comment on Harker going with those vampire women? I thought the whole like being bitten by a vampire thing was a substitute for the sexual act rather than a compliment to it. So I thought... Well, I know, but I'm saying you think he got bit? Because he narrowly avoided it before. We don't see him escape. We see him planning to escape. You think he got nommed a little bit? What do you think? Well, I'm not really sure because there is a very overt masculinity reading here where he seems drained. And... Wouldn't you be? <laughs> Even without the... <laughs> A fair point, but I don't know if it would. I, I'm just saying. I'm just there, there's there's a lot going on here to the point that even at the end of the novel, we don't know if Mina and Harker have ever had sex. He never like yes, fully recovers. That's true. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, did those women get to him? Because the count said, "I've uh, I'm gone. I left Harker for you." I thought you'd been getting with Dracula. That too. Well, anyway, Mina doesn't know about any of this, so she thinks he's just been off with having. Once you go normal... Drac, you can never <laughs> yes. go back. She thinks he's just been having normal um, infidelity rather than supernatural. Eventually, Jonathan gives Mina his diary, and he says he knows it contains the cause or evidence of the cause of his madness. And as you know, so weeks we've obviously read it, but he doesn't remember what's in it, and he doesn't want to. So he's like, "You can look after that, love." They get married uh, in some uh, Anglican church in Budapest. Then, upon returning home from Whitby, Lucy's a bit low. Her mother's ill, as we've already heard, and she is starting to feel a bit peaky again. Something funny is flapping at her window at night, which, you know, no one likes that, do they? He keeps coming back to Lucy over and over again. This is a weird pub crawl. Meanwhile, Arthur's dad is dying, and so he asks Seward to go and visit Lucy on his behalf. The latter writes back to say that she is somewhat bloodless. <laughs> <laughs> Nice to know, but not anemic. Do you think that's a negging thing? Like, yeah, well, I didn't even want her anyway. Yeah, your wife's somewhat bloodless. Your wife to be. Here we go. This is. Oh god. Uh, let me get. <laughs> oh, so, so you're a fan. You're about no, to be a fan of this character. This character, everybody, hold tight. I think we're all about to fall in love. Seward is like, well, she's somewhat bloodless, but not anemic. I'll call up my old friend and master, Professor Van Helsing from Amsterdam, who might know what's up. Van Helsing's on the next boat over, too. This guy does not have a very full calendar. No, he's obviously some kind of, you know... <laughs> Just, he has a lot of free time, I think, yeah. given how many times he goes back and forth between London and Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah. Professor of what, exactly? Yeah, yeah, What's your teaching load like? Upon arriving, Van Helsing is much concerned by Lucy's case. So, Lucy starts to get worse, and even though Arthur's father is dying, they're like, we need to summon Arthur to Lucy's side. And Van Helsing gives Lucy... An old-timey blood transfusion, even though they did not know what blood types were then. What? This is all very yeah. lucky. And so they hook her up to Arthur, he gives her a bunch of his blood. There's it's this... only appropriate that the uh, betrothed should... Uh, I can't do a Dutch accent. <laughs> this is the one bit of the book that I don't like, because there is kind of this weird, gross ownership thing going on about how Arthur's her fiancé, so it's appropriate for him to give her his blood, because then their bodies are combined, but it's like, it's like sex, but less fun. And Van Helsing gives Arthur, who's lost now half of his blood, some liquor. I f***ing love Victorian medicine, where they're just like, yeah, where'd your blood heavy. go? Replace it with booze. Fetch the port. And I'm like, again, I feel like, it is a is a sedative a good option here? Or should you be giving this guy cocaine? Just like a nice hot dinner, I think. <laughs> yeah, 
So Lucy gets better after the blood transfusion, but then the next day she is whiter than ever. So Arthur's off taking care of his dad, and Jack Seward gives his blood in a transfusion next, and this polycule metaphor is getting stronger and stronger. Lucy gets better again, but Van Helsing, who's starting to figure out they're in a vampire story, <laughs> imports garlic from abroad because I guess there was no garlic to be had in England at this time. I felt like Dutch cuisine is the only blander cuisine <laughs> in English, so it seems like the wrong place to get it from, but whatever. And he puts this big wreath of garlic flowers around Lucy's neck and around her windows, and she sort of grimaces and can't stand them, but he insists. And I just think, if you were Jack Seward at this point, right, and if you don't really know that you're in a vampire story and that garlic works against vampires, your confidence in your mentor, mentor yeah. would be so shaken, you'd just be like, he's lost it. Mm. Van Helsing, you've got to retire, you've got to, you know. Or would you be the other way around? You'd be like, yeah, well, that's what he always taught me. Uh, <laughs> you know, time is a great healer. Uh, with an H and a Y. Can I uh, check your palms? Because that is the wankiest thing you have ever <laughs> said. So with the garlic around her neck, Lucy gets better again until her dumbass mother worries that the garlic will overpower Lucy and make her sick. This is some little England, I don't like garlic BS if I've ever heard it. And so not only does she remove all the garlic, she then opens the windows no. to clear the air. Crucial error. So now Van Helsing gives his blood in a transfusion to Lucy because we're rapidly running out of dudes here. And again, she starts to get better. He schools Mrs. Westenra's dumbass and he sleeps in a chair in Lucy's bedroom to make absolutely sure that nothing goes wrong whilst a bat flaps furiously at the glass outside of the window, but it can't get in. And meanwhile, Seward starts to wonder if he's going insane, as am I. Here's a little mythology note here. The, the myth of the vampire being able to transform into a bat. Is that a modern thing or is that an ancient thing? Modern-ish. Incorrect. Okay. No, that there, there are a lot of, um, I think because of the connection to rabies and the sort of idea that, you know, that the contagion and the madness and the things like that. I think there was a lot of connection to wolves and bats and other nocturnal creatures being associated with, you know, obviously werewolves and vampires and, and all of that stuff. But yeah, that's, that, there's a Tagalog vampire type that is just basically a giant bat. But this was before the vampire bat was discovered oh, right. okay. uh, in other parts of the world in South America. That must be like a bit weird. It's yeah, like vindicates the myth. Yes, yeah. Well, because the you know explorers discover the vampire bat, and they're like, oh my god. Yeah. So then we get a newspaper report about a wolf escaping the zoo in very creepy circumstances, and the zookeeper cannot figure out what's driving the animals to distraction. We then cut back to Seward, and one night Renfield manages to escape his cell yet again. Up your security, sir. And he bursts to Seward's office with a knife. How did he get a knife? It's enough that he is broken out twice now, but he has a knife on him. But how else is he going to eat the flies? With his hands? <laughs> a little uh, Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good uh, so he manages to slash Seward, but instead of killing him, he drops to oh, the ground. makes him stronger. And starts lapping up Seward. Nature, I can do both. Carry on. Do you want to take this section? No. <laughs> He manages to slash Seward, but instead of killing him, he basically, Renfield just drops to the floor and starts lapping up Seward's blood, screaming, the blood is the life. I'm sorry, the plot of this is just hitting me in waves. So one night, 
Lucy is sleeping. She's had three blood transfusions in a very short spate of time. Uh, she's sleeping without anyone watching her because all the dudes have like day jobs or whatever. And she hears more flapping outside of her window and it's a bat that can't get in. And then she hears something howling outside and all of a sudden a fucking wolf crashes through the window and Chekhov's heart attack goes off and her mother drops stone dead from shock and Lucy faints and then really disturbingly feel something kind of weird happening to her in the middle of her faint. And you can really see the like, the conflation of sexuality and violence here. This, this reads mm, like a rape scene, yeah. even if it's not technically. Yeah. The fact that it always happens on like a woman's bed. There was a serial called Varney the Vampire, which opens with a, a vampire at his hideous repast as there's the swooning woman on her bed. Hmm, yeah. That's a good line. It is. I think we've just found a Force Meets first single. <laughs> Seward's diary. He's turned up at Lucy's house to see how everyone's getting on. They're not getting on well. Lucy's mother is dead. Lucy is dying. And they give Lucy brandy, of course. Yeah, and um, Van Helsing says, A brave man's blood is the best thing on this earth. <laughs> When a woman is in trouble, and... When a woman is in trouble, that was unintelligible. <laughs> when a woman is in trouble. <laughs> a brave man's blood is the best thing on earth when a woman is in trouble. Correct. I didn't understand about that, sorry. But <laughs> all the men are simply out of blood. And then we get a little miracle. A little Texan gift from the gods. The beautiful American himbo Quincy Morris shows up. He is the himbo up. of the piece, isn't he? They're all himbos, but he is king of oh, the yeah, himbos. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's like unalloyed king. Himbo. Oh god, yeah. The others have other things Unadulterated. Yeah. So he, Quincy has been summoned by Arthur, who is like, I am juggling a sick fiancé and a dying father, and he also is like, our transfusion polycule is simply not complete without you. I've just missed himbos so much in this podcast. It's not been a very himbo-friendly few episodes, has it? I suppose in contrast to the incredibly himbo-heavy early ones. Just God bless you, Quincy. You're God's own special warrior. Yeah. I bet he smells like laughter itself. All right. <laughs> and he gives Lucy yet another blood transfusion. Everyone's out of Ghana now, so that's nice. <laughs> you have to frame it in those terms. I think that's the implication. It, that is it. absolutely the implication. Quince is like... Quince, are you on nickname terms? Yeah. Uh, Quince is like, that poor pretty creature... Critter, they say, don't they? <laughs> that poor pretty critter that we all love has had put in her veins within that time the blood of four strong men. Man alive, her body couldn't hold it and it adds what took it out and so nobody's like really knows what's going on but van helsing he knows yeah i mean again i know that van uh, that um dracula is sort of drawn to this group because he can probably tell that the men are onto him but does he even particularly know lucy he didn't know lucy was connected to yeah, them at it all it is a bit Silly this, I just think, why is he drawn so much to Lucy? Like, he is drawn to her the way a cartoon character is drawn to, like, an apple pie. Like, the smell of it being carried by his nose. lifting power. Yeah. You know what I mean, though? Yeah. Like, like if he were in a 1940s cartoon, he would look at her and envision her as a big turkey drumstick. Yes, yes. Anyway, Lucy dies. But on the plus side, Jonathan Harker's boss has died, leaving him a fortune. But, I mean, there, so there is sort of a killing off of the old guard here. Yeah. We have a whole modernity thing burgeoning where we've... This is how you know the gang is going to win, because they kill off Lucy's mother, they kill off Arthur's father, they kill off Harker's mentor and boss. So now it's like, it's all the young blood mm. coming through. Like, so you can tell Dracula, metaphorically, probably is, it's not his world anymore. What about Van Helsing though? He's old. He'll be dead soon enough. Yeah, hopefully. Meanwhile, 
Mina, who's been derping around Europe with her own ragged-ass love interest, writes to Lucy, having no idea anything's wrong, and she's like, oh, we finally made it back to England, and married life is so great, apart from all of the sudden midnight screaming fits brought on by PTSD, but you know how <laughs> husbands are. That was hey. just from the wedding night. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, how are you? How's your mom? Right back, dummy. Like, just, uh, and you, you read this letter and you go, oh, Mina, honey. Lucy is dead. But Van Helsing pulls a whole, but how dead is she? They arrange Lucy's funeral, and the funeral director is a real creep. She makes a very beautiful corpse, sir. <laughs> corpse. It's quite a privilege to attend on her. It's not too much to say that she will do credit to our establishment. Oh my god. You're the missing python. And, well, Van Helsing is really creepily attentive to the corpse. He's, he's sort of watching for something. And he thinks it would just be a great idea. What if we do just a little mutilation? It's a pleasant uh, Dutch tradition. <laughs> and the, the rest of the polycule is not into that idea. Is Van Helsing part of the polycule? No. But he's giving her blood too. He's forcing his way in. He's 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 Jack's weird friend. You only like the polycules when they're young and handsome people. I like the polycules when they're not annoying and there's an ounce of sexual tension anywhere. Who has any sexual tension? He's a he's the friend who keeps showing up at dinner no, he's time. He's part of the polycule, whether you like it or not. Do you think? Yes. Why? Because he gave his blood. It's about the blood. The blood is the life. First of all, that was out of necessity. He's there with them the whole time. Cool. He's the Lucy supplement, I think that's it. Lucy dies, <laughs> and they're like, let's get this old professor. Yeah, it's in the fan fiction. In the fan fiction? So it's not canonical. Is it? Is this in the fan fiction you write? Yeah. What are, what are those papers? What are you What are you holding? Give nothing, those, nothing, give nothing, 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 nothing. There's just some drawings. <laughs> oh my god. His legs can't bend back that far. <laughs> the rodeos. He learned it while he was on the rodeos. Oh, that's disgusting. Unbridled filth. Okay. They want to, he wants to mutilate her corpse. The rest of the himbo polycule won't let him. And they spend all their time comforting each other in a really beautifully, healthy display of affectionate masculinity. And I just, I really cherish them. Let them grieve. Let them love. Have you, are you going to say the funny line? Arthur looks desperately sad and broken. Even his stalwart manhood seems to have shrunk somewhat. <laughs> I don't know how I've missed yeah. that. I, I read the line that when I first read this. There's, I like that they do comment on each other's manliness a lot. Like, man, that guy's manly. And I'm manly too. Sort of manly stories. Just, uh... <laughs> <laughs> so then we cut to Mina and Harker, who are walking through a crowd in London one day. They still don't know what's happened. They've only just gotten back. So in the crowd, Harker sees a tall, thin man staring creepily at a girl. And Harker has a real PTSD response to this. And all of his memories come flooding back. And he thinks it's the Count, but he's also really confused because this guy looks much, much younger than the Count was. Dark hair, pomaded. Uh, what else does it young people do? He's got a leather jacket on. He's looking pretty cool. <laughs> uh... Already upset, they go home, and then they get the word that Lucy has died. The Westminster Gazette reports that a number of cockney urchins, pearled and non-pearled alike, <laughs> pearly and, and unpearly, I've gone missing. And a mysterious blue fur lady is the prime suspect. Blue fur, I believe, is a sort of cockney slang term for beautiful. Right? It is, yes, well remembered. From the last time I went to London, everyone was hailing it at me. Or like, you know, like builders and things. Uh, <laughs> Mina at last reads Jonathan's diary and she's spooked and hooked. This would make a great novel. Yeah, exactly. At last the two narratives start to relink. And so Jonathan's kind of pleased that he's not mad, but it's upset. 
though there are vampires. Next, Van Helsing disabuses Seward of his rationalism and says, Do you not think that there are things which you cannot understand, and yet which are? Uh, it talks about wizards, stuff like that. It's a really <laughs> long bit. I can't be bothered to read that bit. Then he says, Those children were bitten by Mishlushi. Seward is upset. He's like, I am a modern man of science, and I don't believe in women biting children. Well, yeah, all the polycule is like, Not our ivory puppet. But then they all goes to the pub, get royally pissed, and head into the graveyard to do who knows what. That is how every pub trip I've ever had with you has ended. Leaping over tombstones. And I just think, why are we doing this again? I know you can clear them all. But only with the uh, righteous power of booze in me. So, they open Lucy's coffin in the middle of the night, and it is empty. And even then, the men are like, well, this only proves that she's not here. We don't want to believe she's the undead. I mean, maybe we just misplaced her corpse. You know, it, it could happen. And then they see a figure walking between the trees, and Van Helsing lumbers after it and chases it off, and he returns with a small injured child. But they can't find the mysterious figure again. Then they come back the next night, and they open Lucy's coffin again, and she's in there this time. Mm. She looks healthier and more sort of luscious than ever they talk about. And she how... ever has before. Yes, yeah, so they're like, oh, okay, maybe there's something a little... I mean, I'm not not into necrophilia at this moment. Like, they have very confused responses to her. The Brotherhood of the Himbos meets, and they finally agree, only after much debate, because they're all female body respecters, to cut off Lucy's head and... <laughs> <laughs> They agree to cut off Lucy's head and stuff her mouth with garlic like a twisted Nigella recipe. And then they come back the next night and they find the coffin empty yet again. Hmm. Lucy creeps up on them, walking again with another small child that she's taken. And Lucy has gotten hot. It, quote, The sweetness had turned to adamantine heartless cruelty and the purity to voluptuous wantonness. Oh, yes. She is DTF, friends. Down to feast. So she starts seducing Arthur hard, saying how her arms are hungry for him and saying how much she wants to kiss him. And Arthur thinks about it for a minute. He's like, now nah, I've fallen for that twice this week, so no, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass. I saw somebody on Twitter once say, as a sort of critique of the sexy vampire trope, quote, the vampire is capital and we shouldn't try to f it, and I heartily disagree. There's a lot going on in that uh, <laughs> I know. analogy. They manage to get her back into the tomb, and after some finagling, they cut off her head and stake her through the heart. And this is a pretty grisly scene for the time. And only then does Van Helsing allow Arthur to finally kiss Lucy. And I'd be like, mm, pass. Mythology alert. Beheading and staking. Is that something Bram Stoker invented? Uh, brand new. It is not. Oh. They found this in like Neolithic graves and things where clearly people were afraid of bodies rising from the dead. So they used to disable the body in several ways. They used to, you know, chain it or stake it to the to the ground. They would sever tendons. They would cut bodies pure, like straight in half to keep it from rising. Mm. But the stakes in the heart thing, that's a much more recent invention. This largely stemmed from Georg Stahl, who was a believer in vitalism. And that was this idea that the body and the soul are two completely separate things and that your soul 
occasionally when it would like leave your body could get accidentally trapped in your heart. Uh, and he used to practice something called therapeutic exhumation, which when there was some sort of like illness or disturbance in a community, he'd be like, oh no, somebody who's recently died, clearly their soul got lost on its way up to heaven. It's in their heart. Quick, everybody dig up all these corpses and stake them through the heart and to release the soul and then balance will be restored to the community. It's a very good way of keeping people in work, isn't it? <laughs> The grave digger, yeah, he's, yeah. he's getting backhanders from lot, the grave diggers. Well, I was thinking more just there's a lot of unemployed people in this town. Let's get them digging up all the bodies and <laughs> that'll be a good, put them in work. Mina starts typing up Jonathan's diary, as well as her own diary and Seward's. She collates them all into one volume. Which we're reading now. Yeah, complete with press cuttings. Yeah, she's writing the book, which I, I like that, that's quite... It's a bit, something slightly corny about it, but I think it's a funny uh, idea. Yeah, but I like that she goes, like, she really leans into the new woman thing. She goes full corporate project manager on this. She's collating <laughs> paper. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's, a, you know, she's making a timeline. Everybody starts reading the book. They love it. <laughs> you know, they, like, start advertising the book within the book, don't they? They're like, wow, this is really entertaining. Mate, we've already bought your dumb book. You yeah, don't need to advertise yeah, it here. Please keep reading. <laughs> Seward starts to think that Renfield might have a connection to all the vampirage. Why? Then... Van Helsing is like, vampires need the earth of their homeland to be at full strength. This, this dirt connection is all, has always been really weird and funny to me. I picture Dracula laying down in like Arthur's flower beds trying to get comfortable going, sir, right. your dirt is broken. Yeah, so they're like, we have to get all of the 50 cases of common earth contained in that boat <laughs> that came in at Whitby. We need to get them, neutralize them with holy stuff. The MacGuffin here is dirt. But that will make Dracula weak. He'll have to go on the run. That's when they take him down. So we get this boring detective story stuff. Jonathan loves it. I'm sorry, you say boring detective story. I'm here thrilled out of my mind because we're not in a detective story. We're in a heist film. Well, they made it boring. You find awesome things boring. Yes, I suppose I do. Yeah, I like all the, you know, the blood and the, 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 the mercy-bearing steak. Some people just like... Visits to solicitors talking about shipments. Have we switched personalities? Yes, yes exactly. Yeah, that's what's going on Is here. Is this a Halloween thing? Oh my god, the whole time, I'm actually Daniel. I'm dressed up as Abby. Happy Halloween, everybody. Listen to how good my accent is. Yes. Hello. <laughs> I can't do it. Whatever I'm doing. <laughs> I can't riff on this. Feeble. Because I am Abby. Uh, <laughs> right back. Then all the boys go and see Renfield, who is hyper polite. He compliments them all in turn. <laughs> Redfield's definitely my favorite character. Anyway. Uh, yeah, welcome to etiquette hour with a mentally ill person. This is so weird. He's doing it though, he's acting all sane because he wants Seward to let him out, but he kind of over it, doesn't he? He's kind of acting too re refined. Seward's not falling for it. And, yeah, he's uh, like, sorry, brah, I'm not gonna roll with your paranoid delusion. Meanwhile, while, while all the, the boys are complimenting each other, getting complimented, they're all just kind of having a real um, love-in, aren't they? Mina's a bit kind of more like... Yeah, this book does cut through heterosexuality like butter, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, but there's a bit where they're all like, Mina's like, man-like, they've told me to go to bed and sleep. As if a woman can sleep when those she loves are in danger, so she's a bit kind of like, they think they're the shit, but... They're still pretty uh, condescending. I mean, first of all, as a woman, that would infuriate me. Also, they want a little alone time. I was going to say, yeah, Mina, can you go to bed so we can all rub each other's tummies? <laughs> this is a good bit. It is, isn't it? You know why? Because it's a heist film. They break into the basement of Carfax Manor because they figure they, they figured out that's where some of the boxes of Earth are. And they count them up, and only half of them are there. They're about to search the boxes, 
But then one of the himbo brigade gasps, thinking they've seen the count sort of emerge from a corner. And it's this really creepy scene. The sort of the air seems to shift around them at this point. Quincy, beautiful, brave himbo that he is. I'm not responsible for that air shift. <laughs> he jumps in feet first with a redneck cry of delight and rushes straight into the dark to investigate, only to immediately... Whoa, that Quincy, I like to hold him back. <laughs> but he stumbles You'll back... You'll hurt yourself. <laughs> he stumbles back out of the shadows in horror because the room is all of a sudden seething with rats and they have to make this really terrible escape. They then do a lot more investigating and they find out that Dracula also has a house in central London and that must be where the rest of the boxes are. And they try to figure out how to break in. He's just buying up property all mm, over the yeah, place. Yeah. Oh, oh no! Just after Renfield was being at his most hilarious, <laughs> he has been paralyzed following a mysterious violent incident. Seward and Van Helsing attend to him and he says that he had noticed Mina was getting weaker. By the way, he and Mina have been having little chats for some reason. While all the boys are off having fun, Mina's been visiting Renfield. How bored do you have to be? And so Renfield was upset to see that Mina seemed to be getting weaker, and he was like, I know what's going on. Dracula's feeding off her, and that kind of spooks him a bit, doesn't it, I think? Again, are there no other women in London? I mean, I, 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 I guess Dracula eats local. Yeah, yeah, That's... yeah. Then Renfield is like, Dracula visited his cell in the form of a mist and induced all kind of disturbing visions and then just battered him pretty much, didn't he? And that's that's how he got paralyzed. Then Renfield dies. They're all like, oh no, no, Renfield's dead. And the the you know, the fifth beetle. Uh, yeah. the, the, the fifth polycule guy. We'll never think about him again. Away. <laughs> then they all break into Mina and Jonathan's bedroom and they see Dracula, he's in there too. He's compelling Mina to drink blood from his bosom. Oh, this is disgusting. Her face was ghastly, ghastly, I tell you, with a pallor that was accentuated by the blood which smeared her lips and cheeks and chin. From her throat trickled a thin stream of blood. This is the most fucked up breastfeeding rape metaphor I have ever seen combined. I hate this so much. I like how the himbo is running in. With the shocked air of, we discovered we're wearing the same thing at a party. You? What? Uh, <laughs> he says, he has now made her flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood, my bountiful wine press for a while, and shall later on be my companion and helper. So, she's gonna be a vampire, Mina is. He's French now. <laughs> I'm sorry, was, was the increasing incredulity on my face throwing you off your game? Yeah. I mean, I know we keep your game real tight, generally, on this show. <laughs> so Mina's having a real rough time of it, as you would if you've just been assaulted. Van Helsing tries to put a sacred wafer up to her head to see if he can Jesus the vampire out of her, but instead the wafer just burns her forehead. So oh, That's a good bit, yeah. So yeah, now she has a huge scar on top of everything else to like stress out about. It says rich tea. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the way they break into his London house, though. So they're like, how do we get in? And Arthur's there like, again, like we're in a heist movie. What if we walked in through the front door? And they'll <gasps> go, what? So Arthur, who's now a lord, just goes up to the front door. He says, it's his new house that he's just bought. The keys are wrong for it. And he's just like, hey, you locksmith, you there, open the door for me. And he does this in broad daylight as people are passing on the street in this really, really ritzy neighborhood and nobody questions it, which is a baller move, but also an indicator of how wealth in this story is used as a shield, right? 
I'll just wait for somebody to stop me. And then, yeah. because your lot are so polite, just be like... We're like, oh, begging your pardon, sir. Yeah. I, don't, I never even heard of no austerity. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that's also an important point, because Dracula couldn't do half of what he did without his incredible wealth. So inside the house, they, they investigate and they find yet more boxes. But one of them is still missing. Dracula then turns up at the house and attacks the gang. I, I really don't get why he's so obsessed with them. I think Dracula's just lonely. And he turns up there and he's like, you know what? You guys are my best friends. <laughs> Whatever his reason, Harker uh, tries to stab Dracula with a kukri, which if you don't know what that is, I looked it up. You don't know what that is? I didn't know what that was. The Gurkhas. It is a big curved f**k you knife is what it is. It's the one that... Once you take it out, you cannot put it back until you've drawn blood. Meaning what, like you're you're obliged once you take it out to... Yeah, because the Gurkhas are so like badass that they're like, well... That's a word that comes naturally to you. Badass. That they have to um, draw blood a bit and so the story is, is like, if there's no one around to kill, if the battle, like if war, if peace were declared just before they were about to do someone in, they'd be like, they have to draw a bit of blood from their own hand. Gross, that sounds hygienic. Yeah. This it, is such like a boys, especially in England maybe, like... This is like a factoid that I feel like I've been told in the playground like a hundred times. This podcast has brought out the male in you such as I have never seen. You were coming at this with a whole lot of- This particular of, episode? Uh, no, the podcast generally gross food. And you're just Weapons. like, ooh, knives, mmm, I'm a <laughs> there's, boy. There's a bit, the, the book's like that, isn't it? There's all sort of like, I know. so I got two repeating Winchesters here that got, you know, Six millimeter barrels, <laughs> you know, poison tip bullets. It's a, and it's you're, a, you're a lot, living... and I'm like, oh yeah, it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> I'm ostensibly a pacifist, but I like to hear about the weapons. Dracula is able to escape, but Van Helsing says they've got him on the run, basically, because he only has his one box of dirt that they haven't accounted for. Especially because, and this, I think this is really cool. Mina has developed through her, you know, instead of letting this like assault basically ruin her life. Instead, it has de she's developed some sort of weird psychic connection with the Count, and they put her under hypnosis to trace his movements. So she basically becomes a weapon. They put her under hypnosis, and I've, I've resisted screaming, get therapy in this episode, because I knew the scene was coming, and this is the most therapy anyone has ever gotten on our podcast. Mm. So Mina is able to tell them all that Dracula is hightailing it back to Transylvania with his final box of dirt. England has not turned out as well as he wanted it to. He is going to go home and regroup. If these guys were jerks, they could just say, all right, well, don't let the door hit you where the yeah. good lord split yet and be done with it. But no. It's Franz Jose's problem now. Our, our fellowship of the himbos... These beautiful idiots. They go to Mordor. They have entered a Korean revenge film and they're gonna follow him. And so we enter Endgame. Dracula is boating it back to Transylvania. Meanwhile, the rest of the gang, Scoob and the gang, they're heading on the Overland route. I mean, and I like that Van Helsing is just like, we need to plan very carefully. We have one shot at this in Quincy's Lake. Counteroffer, what if we just get a bunch of guns and see where this takes <laughs> yeah, us? Yeah, yeah. America, baby! Acknowledging that Mina and Dracula's psychic link might be a two-way street, i.e. like he can, he can see where they are. So they acknowledge that, they keep her relatively ignorant of their plans to take him down. It's the one instance of let's keep the delicate little woman out of it that I don't hate because this actually makes sense and it's, 
she is a weapon too. Mm. So it's not just like, oh, well, she's she's our precious little dulcet dove and we got to protect her. It's like, they're like, no, she, you know. They make it to Transylvania and eventually Van Helsing and Mina go to Castle Dracula and they dig up those three bodacious vampire broads from the beginning. Bodacious. I grew up in the 90s. I was gonna, well, we're in proper like Bill and Ted country now. Yep. I will not apologize for it. Stop asking me to. Okay. And they, they start, again, the whole mutilation and wafering procedures. I, I just love the idea, though, because we're, we're going into the final shootout. And I love the idea of Van Helsing holding out, like, two wafers sideways, like he needs, he's in a gangster film, being like, I got two in the chamber, motherfucker, let's dance. <laughs> so we finally get to the Wild West showdown we wanted. The boys are all armed with their Winchester rifles. This is proper boys' own adventure. And they spy Dracula's carriage heading toward the castle, and they ambush him. Dracula is weaker in the daylight, but the sun is rapidly setting, so time is of the essence. Mythology note. The whole vampires can't go into the sun thing. Because it makes them really sparkly. That is correct, yeah. yeah. God, Dracula is glittery and hot in the sunlight, and he, he becomes a real master of pheromonies here. He can't let the boys see him. Um, oh, you, no, you didn't like that pun? I did, I did you, like it, I was just gonna like... You win. This is the giddy limit. <laughs> <laughs> I think Old as the Hills. Totally modern invention, even beyond Dracula. Nosferatu. Nosferatu, which is a film that basically couldn't get the rights to Dracula, the book, so they just plagiarized it. So 1922, they used this line from the book as inspiration. I don't know if they misunderstood it or they just changed it, but Dracula is only a little bit weaker in the daytime because he's more nocturnal. But yeah, th that's where the vampires can't go in the sun thing comes from. Somewhat here, but mostly Nosferatu. So they open Dracula's box just in time before the sun sets. Jonathan and Quincy frantically kill him with their respective knives. Quincy has a Bowie knife. Jonathan has his, as we said, the big... Cookery. Cookery. Sadly... Oh no. I don't even want to talk about it. Okay. Quincy. Don't bother then. My beautiful himbo baby. He got knifed and he dies, but not before yelling, it was worth this to die. I hope you join that big old Alamo in the sky. Yeah, well, that wouldn't sound very nice. Maybe they would have been alright if they'd had him there. So Jonathan ends the book with a note written many years later, and he realizes that the book altogether is not as convincing <laughs> a document as they had all assumed it would be at the Plot time. Holes. Reductive characterization. I've never seen a newspaper article that long. Uh, <laughs> a vat full of dialogue. But Van Helsing resolves that we want no proofs. We ask no one to believe us. The end. That's not referable. He's a professor! <laughs> oh yeah, of course, yeah. That's pretty funny. Daniel, would you be a vampire if given the option? I uh, feel like I probably already am undead. I mean, it's rude to say. I already feel pretty alienated, but mm -hmm. I get to be super powerful, so ultimately it's a net gain. <laughs> do you want to do some casting? Because I have gone completely off the rails with this one. This is the worst idea I've ever had. Okay. It's a bad idea. Great. So but it's I, always the first time? Uh, look, there are so many versions of Dracula. This is actually really hard to cast because they all kind of do different things. But I don't think any version has captured the complicated, beautiful, wholesome masculinity, the sort of queerness in a really, like, lovely way. So what we need is we need men who are puppyish and sweet and handsome. Kittenish. And kittenish. And... You know, have that, that slight queer reading, but also can pull off the hyper-masculine, 
Shuda at the end. So I have cast as the the polycule. Charles Aznavour. No, no, no. Listen to me. Okay. Only, only song and dance men who are also action heroes. Yes, I could see that. Yeah, already. Go on. So Channing Tatum or someone like that. Oh no, that's a, that's actually a good one. No, I went with a slightly older vintage purely because we need a young Patrick Swayze as Quincy. Okay. Young... Patrick Quincy as Swayze. Yep. <laughs> a young Hugh Jackman as Arthur Holmwood. Because he's played lords before. He's played slight posh I've played before. lords before, matey. I've gone slightly... I wanted to make this a little bit more interesting. Because this actor, in addition to being a song and dance man and an action hero, has also played a semi-disturbed doctor before. A very, like, dark doctor. Antonio Banderas as Dr. Seward. Whoa! That's wild. I want Ewan McGregor as Harker. And then I've gone off the rails with Van Helsing. I'm tired of these old grandpa types. Give me somebody young, spry, weird. Doogie Hauser. TV's Doogie Hauser is Van Helsing. Alan Cumming. Oh, yeah. No, I can see that. Yeah. He could make it tolerable. And then as Lucy and Mina, I want Margot Robbie as Lucy because she's beautiful and she already has really sharp looking teeth. When she smiles, I'm already worried she's going to yes, bite me. Yes, yes. Tessa Thompson as Mina because Tessa Thompson would break me. She would break both of us over her knee. Sorry, I think this is not a good idea. Nah, I think it's good. But it's very hard. What would the sort of tone be then? Because I suppose that's the well, more important thing. I'm going to ask you about that. I don't really know. I don't really know. Because there have been so many tones of Dracula, and I don't think any of them get it quite right. This is a very hard book to cast. But I do have a question later that is built on the analysis about what would Dracula represent, and that maybe will help a little bit. So in terms of analysis, one of the reasons that Dracula has stayed around is because he's a really, really mutable character, so he can fulfill a lot of different mm. symbolic functions. So if you guys don't know, there was another book that came out, I, I can't remember if it was the same month that Dracula was published, but it was the same year, and it was called The Beetle. Nobody remembers The Beetle today, but it was vastly more popular than Dracula. Beetlemania. But the problem with The Beetle is that we can, like, as a symbol, the character of the beetle, we could just project a lot less on it. Dracula, you could read that through hundreds of lenses. We're still discovering lenses, right? So the Dracula, yeah, he can refer to all well, sorts of uh, we have, things. We have Nosferatu, where he stood in for plague and because mm. the Spanish flu had just happened. With the Bela Lugosi version, it was European menace because we're in between two world wars. In the sort of hammer horror 50s version with Christopher Lee, Dracula becomes sexual panic of, mm. am I not manly enough? This guy is attacking our women. We had all of these sort of, not only interview with the vampire and Dracula 2000, but also the Bram Stoker's Dracula, that there it was all this fear about time. The most recent one with Luke Evans is all about anti-Islamic sentiment. So Dracula always encapsulates for every generation what we fear. So my question, with especially I'm going to apply this to my casting, what is the... You can't say contagion again with COVID because we've already had that with Nosferatu. You can't get better than that. Okay. But what's the Dracula for today? Uh, uh, what? I have a good one for this. Right, okay. Well, now I need to come up with a good one. What are people frightened of now? <laughs> Ghosts? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, populism? I don't know. Oh, that actually... I could see that... Dracula the demagogue. Well, but if it's about con a conversion of a mass, like that's mm. his plan, isn't it? Yeah. That's more like zombie stuff, though, isn't it? Zombie stuff is better at that. Go on then, what's yours? This, this might be, again, a slightly bonkers reading, but it's all about 
mindless consumption and sort of people as grist for the mill and things like that and just like just endless colonization what about an eco-critical dracula where just, <laughs> yeah, go on, yeah where dracula is humanity and it's you know up to the sort of the the natural types you know if we if we assign the himbo squad to sort of the realm of nature to fight back Ooh, that's a whole mess of alienations isn't it humanity from nature humanity from capital and its system preying on its own livelihood. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that just about works. I think this whole thing with the with the incredible polycule of men who the are the incredible polycule. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait for a new edition of the incredible polycule to come out. It all could do it. You guys, <laughs> we have created the single worst version of Dracula that has ever existed. I'm proud of us. Yeah. The form of this is incredible. I was really appreciating the structure this mm, time round. Yes. In that we have these perfect gothic set pieces. We have the Harker trapped in the gothic castle. We have the, the ship and disappealing sailors and storm. The asylum with Renfield. The my friend is mis mysteriously wasting away and sleepwalking. Like each one of these is perfect on its own and together they f they fit together yeah. they are very good aren't they because like the first half of the novel yeah we have these almost separate like novellas and they are framed in a fragmentary way aren't we? where we kind of get cuts back and forth mm -hmm. between them and we cut, we don't fully know how they might relate to each yeah. other but then as they all as the characters start to put all their stories together and work out what dracula's movements are and what his behavior is that becomes a way that they learn to beat him, but also it becomes a narrative thing, as you say. Like, yeah, I, I, I like that too. It's about knowledge, isn't it, I suppose, isn't it? That, I mean, Van Helsing even says that, doesn't he? That we need to keep a kind of thorough documentation of everything that of everything that Dracula's doing, or else we're not gonna be able to beat him. Though. But it's it's the sort of modernity of we are yes, now, exactly, yes. it's no longer oral tradition and, and spooky supernatural wisdom, like you're lucky if it's passed from person to person. Now it's, we keep yeah. documented yeah. evidence. Yeah. We can we're actually- systematically- Like Dracula, guys, he yeah. can't just buy a castle by flinging a bag of gold at somebody anymore. He needs a lawyer from yeah. England. He needs <laughs> several lawyers, you know, so it's, it's a yeah. sort of- um, Paperwork saves the day. <laughs> They weren't very popular, were they, um, pessary novels by this time? They're more of an 18th century. I love this, like, collage of documents. I feel like I'm surprised that more novels aren't like it, Well, it's, it's reinventing, it's taking back, yeah, this old-fashioned art form and making it modern. Mm, yeah. Again, making it sort of like, how do we tell it through not just one person's boring journal? Yeah. It's also, like, it limits perspective, doesn't it? So we, like, mm. we, we don't get a kind of omniscient narrator describing Dracula. It's just kind of like... All these people seeing different sides of him at different times and you know so he is and, it retains the mystery therefore and it, it maintains that idea as well of um not irony as such but it, it maintains a sort of sinister level in which because we have been privy to all of these documents there are people yes who, there is, that is a dramatic irony who, type thing isn't it we know and they don't yeah yeah, yeah. okay so i guess it is yeah but the, the fact that it's, that's really creepy. There are times in this where somebody goes, oh, and this thing happened, and I'm like, oh, honey, yeah, no, but... You haven't read Jonathan Harker's diary. <laughs> yeah, but it's such an innocuous thing. Why would that person mm. think that? And it's just this passing line where you go, your heart just sinks yeah. in because you know what's going to happen. The gender and sexuality in this book, I could see it maybe being a little fraught today for the time. This is a nice subversion of the damsel in distress thing because yes, they do, they, they know that if she can sort of see his thoughts, it could go the other way. So they do have to keep her in the dark, yeah. but um, she's much more proactive and involved and it's much more careful. But it's like, 
It's just, it's just X-Men, isn't it? In X-Men and in lots of other superhero things, all the women superheroes have powers that are kind of not really like active powers. They're more sort of like intangible. I can heal yeah, really exactly. fast yeah. or something. But also they can't even control it properly. They're like, you know, oh, I'm just PMS in here and, you know, I'm going to blow up the world. It's always like a sexist thing. So here we've got Dr. Seward. Ooh, I'm really good with science and brains and things. Mm-hmm. Holmwood, I'm posh. Quincy, I got a gun. Van Helsing, he's folksy. And then... Mina's power, they're all off doing crazy no, stuff. Mina's power, I can type, and also, you know, I've got some kind of weird psychic trauma that connects me to the villain. For the time period. No, you are right. You are right, but also just looking back on it, you can see it in the time. But she's the well. one who's like, I need to organize all of our crap. You guys are just sort of running off half caught. Can we actually figure no, yeah, out? Yeah, 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 yeah. I totally agree. I know with what you yeah. mean that there are certain but powers. I feel like her role is complementary rather than active, if you know what I mean. But I, I totally agree with everything yes. you're saying. No, no, no. I'm not saying she is anywhere near as active as the men. It's obviously much more a boys club, and I would I would love more women in this. But for the time, especially, I was yeah. like, this is a real departure from the damsel in distress Oh, yes, narrative. that's true, yeah. And I know there's a lot of debate about Lucy, mm. about is she just some beautiful bimbo and she doesn't really have much of a purpose beyond being this love interest for three men that mm. sparks this whole thing, and to be victimized... But also, she declares very clearly her her wants and needs. She also starts getting victimized very, very soon before she can fully develop as a person. Mm. You could read that. I suppose that. that's the point of her character is that she's just there to be victimized. Possibly, but then when you contra- compare her to Mina and you compare the fact that she has really big ideas, mm. part of me wonders if this is the whole point is that, you know, women get their lives cut out from under them at a young age and all of a sudden they then just become a, a sort of device for a man's mm. life. Yeah. So I... No, no, yeah. I mean, you can definitely read it in that way. I just... I mean, Mina is load-bearing. She's a load-bearing Mina yeah. for a lot of the other women in this book, but I don't know. So some advice on this. I think Dracula is a really great book to practice close reading on but I think you can do this with any book so practice switching to different lenses and if you think about all the things we've talked about all the things Dracula could stand in for do this with every book so what is this book like in terms of nationality in terms of its gender dynamics in terms of how it portrays sexuality and queerness the body and disability and disease what about class and money age surveillance what I mean close read its form what is it doing in terms of its form and what is it saying so if you you can get really really good at close reading by just running through a list of different broad themes or areas for every book and they're not going to all be applicable to every book but like being able to switch on and off and go quick do a queer reading quick do an economic reading you know all of that stuff that helps make your mind a lot more flexible we have also moved to this section letters so sydney wrote back sydney uh, our yes, fan yeah. Dan- daniel didn't fully alienate my, you yeah my rebuff didn't didn't work uh, <laughs> uh so sydney Try harder yeah, yeah sydney writes hello it's me again thank you so much for answering on the show to answer your question, I was actually referring to the queer reading between Hamlet and Horatio. I am ashamed to admit I have zero memory of this. I forget about Horatio full stop. I, I clearly I haven't seen this in years. I need to I need to read it again. Yeah. The final scene in particular is incredibly blatant. Really? Yeah. Oh man. Well I, well, I don't think I've seen Hamlet since I was a wee child of twenty before I knew what <laughs> what uh, queer readings what were. Was what? On an unrelated note, the most ridiculous thing Sydney's ever done for a romantic interest is read Great Expectations. <laughs> how's, see, how's that ridiculous? Watch the film. Watch the very good David Lean film. That's 
right, I forgot. Oh my god, what episode was that from? I think it was uh, God of Small Things. That's exactly what it was. Yes, the, yeah, in, in one of our previous episodes, somebody converted to Catholicism and decided to become a nun to impress a boy. Yeah. And I... <laughs> well, it's Sydney's now girlfriend's favourite book, and they wanted to impress her, but hates Dickens. I would say read Dombey and Son. That, if you read Dombey and Son for Love, then I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, I think you could, I, you could up your game. You could do something far more ridiculous. Have you set anyone's garage on fire? Just yeah. a suggestion. Okay. For, a, Sorry, no. a, for a burning copy of Great I, Expectations in, to somebody's I am not garage. advocating arson, unless it's for love. Okay. okay, now we got the big one. Finally, we've had one from Abby's oft-mentioned friend, Justine. She also... It was wrapped around a uh, brick, wasn't it, and thrown through a window. She might be becoming your nemesis. Join the club, that's what I say. Join the bleeding club. Yeah, I know. Tell her to queue up. I realise this is about a month late, but I'm sitting in Logan Airport. Uh, I don't know what that is. Boston. Okay. Catching up on your Great Gatsby episode. I felt I had to jump in again on the Beaver Pope discussion. That classic phrase. <laughs> um, yeah, this is, this is conflated from several episodes where my best friend Justine and Daniel have had uh, an ongoing debate fight a feudal they, feud they, <laughs> that they could just do through email like normal people except they don't really know each other so it's happening via podcast yeah like all the best debates daniel is unlike about pottage right about the story of the medieval beaver chewing off its testicles to escape hunters their testicles or if we're being pedantic technically their scent glands okay well <laughs> That's related, aren't they? Were used in perfumes. So, in, yeah, because all. I mean. Polecat's arsehole is the classic. Um, we, uh, we, don't need perfume. Your, we don't need all your sordid details. Okay. Uh, so, in the story, they're giving the hunters what they want in order to escape with their lives. Ah, because it's sort of got an allegorical edge to it. It's mm -hmm. not just some kind of mad thing. The story comes from medieval bestiaries. Pictures of funny animals with little notes. The Aberdeen uh, bestiary is my background on my phone. There you go. And there, there are actually three pictures right there behind you. Oh yeah, I'm looking right at them, listeners. All bestiary stories were allegories. Oh, okay, there you go. We got the allegory right there. And the beaver one is meant to symbolise man cutting away sin in order to escape the devil. Full stop. Fun! Exclamation mark. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose that is fun, isn't it? <laughs> Finally, as for why a pope was portrayed as a beaver, I can't remember who it was or why specifically. Justine! Just but I could find out. Well... Ooh, that's a bit of a cliffhanger. Woman... The only other big subject we have to discuss is the Sir Gawain film. Am I boring you already? Yeah. Did you have a big day? You had the biggest day. <laughs> Can a man not yawn? <laughs> I watched Daniel didn't because he don't give a shit. I like books, not films. That's a lie. I don't like either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my review of the Gawain film. Look. It could have cut easily half an hour in the middle. It was a little overly long, but it was really weird. It was sexy. It maintained a poetry element. And above all, it was a really good adaptation. It knew that it was a poem, which is not a film. So it made it a film. And it had prose for you. It had... Poetry for me, you mean. I don't know if you get the joke. Uh... No, didn't get it. Cool. Refused to acknowledge it. Swiping left on that joke. It had the f your five big fives. Oh yeah, I love those. Some do of Mary, some do of pentagrams. Yeah. Keep going. It had the wild Wirral people. Oh yeah, god. Cons. It was distinctly Welsh, not Cornish. The CGI for the Green Knight looked like shit, but Dev Patel looked like a million freaky bucks. 
But that, this was a very, very hard text to adapt, and I just want you all to respect what they did. Because yeah. that could not have been easy. No. The clue to the next episode. The book we're about to read has a really great Steven Spielberg adaptation of it, but to date, it is his only movie in his very long career that focuses on a female protagonist, and that is not a great track record. So please write into our email at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. Please subscribe wherever you listen because it just, it makes our life a little bit easier. These, these stupid algorithms are slowly killing me. So, you know, it just makes it easier for people to find the podcast. And apart from that, I have nothing to say but goodbye, thank you, and creepy crawler days. Instantly regretted that one. Yeah, I hate Halloween. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.